Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. There is an innate desire for greatness. This is a human characteristic. And it's actually understandable if we think of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Of course, God is great. God is the greatest. So this sense inside of all of us that there should be some greatness that we attain to is built into us. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, in a message titled, The Greatest in the Kingdom. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So, here we are, and we combined these two passages today because, of course, it's really the same topic that is being discussed in both passages. So thought it would be good to tie them together. And it's about true greatness or, or greatness from God's perspective. What is it to be great? And, of course, there's nothing intrinsically the matter with the desire to be great, as we're going to see in a moment. But the important thing is to make sure our definition of greatness is the right one and our pursuit of greatness is taking place through the right things. So as we pick up now, remember Jesus has been drilling into the heads and hearts of his disciples that his mission as the Messiah is not going to be what they had thought. And so once again, here in the first few verses that we read, we see he's, he's reiterating what he's previously said. The Son of Man is, is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And this, of course, was not at all the picture that the people had in mind of the Messianic mission. So Jesus is correcting that. And he's wanting to get them to, you know, understand that it's different than they had thought and what everybody else had thought. But he also then is continuing to show them that the way of God's kingdom is very different than what they had previously thought. And the kingdom of God is going to be unlike all other kingdoms, all other kingdoms, greatness is identified by power and ruling over others. But in God's kingdom, it's going to be marked by serving others. And, and so this is the message. And Jesus is starting with his followers, the, this band of men that he's chosen. They're the foundation. They're going to be the ones that are going to carry the message ultimately out to the world. So he's starting with them and instructing them on the way things are actually going to be. But what we're going to see is that they're not getting it necessarily. Uh, they're not getting it like we would think that they, they should. And 
we can't be too hard on them because we still haven't gotten it today, um, many of us, after uh, all of these centuries. So, But as, as we just look at the subject of greatness, now, there is an innate desire for greatness. This is a human characteristic. And it's actually understandable if we think of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Of course, God is great. God is the greatest. We're made in the image of God and we're created for the glory of God. So this sense inside of all of us that you know, there, there should be some greatness that we attain to is built into us. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself. And we need to see that right from the beginning. God intends us for greatness. That there's, God has a great thing that he is planning for us. And it, to some degree, it unfolds throughout our lives. And that's different for every person. But we're all of us headed finally, ultimately, to a state of greatness. That's what God has for us. So, so it's something that's been built into us. You know, it's amazing how you see this in children. You see little children. Daddy, daddy, watch this. And, you know, there's some feet that they're going to accomplish as you watch them. They're going to jump off a little wall or something. And then, and of course, you're going to go, yes, that's, that is great. That's such a great job. And then they're going to get up and they're going to do it over and over and over again. Uh, because daddy, daddy, watch again. And it's, it's a natural thing. And we love that. Or, or mommy, mommy, watch this. Or in my case, grandpa, grandpa, watch this. That's what's happening for me these days. But there's also this interesting thing. Not only do, especially the ones with the siblings, not only do they want to be acknowledged as great in what they're doing, it's like, Grandpa, Grandpa, I'm the greatest though, right? I'm better than my brother. (laughs) I'm better than my sister at this. It's a human characteristic, and we all understand that. So point simply being again, that the desire isn't always wrong. The desire for greatness, it depends on your motive and means of attaining the greatness. So the fact that these guys wanted to be great, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say to them, uh, you shouldn't want that. He just says to them, you're going about it the wrong way. So as we look at the stories, let's look at both of these stories for a moment. It's quite comical when you stop and think about what was going on here. So in the first story, we have the disciples on the road with Jesus. They have, they're passing through Galilee. And then when it comes to verse 33, it says they came to Capernaum And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? So evidently, as they're walking along, these guys are having an argument and Jesus overhears this dispute that's taking place. But now he very pointedly asks them, so what were you disputing over? And notice what it says, but they kept silent. (laughs) So they're busted. And no doubt right now they're feeling pretty stupid 
because these are grown men, and what are they disputing about? They are disputing about which one is going to be the greatest. I mean, and this is, when you think about grown men doing this, you think, wow, that seems so childish. <laughs> and it is in some ways, but it's, again, it's part of the human condition. So, but like I said, Jesus doesn't say, well, you shouldn't talk about greatness. He just says to them, he gives them some clarity on it. And he sat down, called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last. He shall be last of all and the servant of all. So, okay, you want to be first? That's a good thing. That's fine. You want to be great? Fantastic. This is how to do it. To be the greatest of all, you're going to be the servant of all. Now, as it is with so many different things, the biblical picture of reality is like, it's the upside down or probably better way to understand. It's the right side up version of things. So the world has its idea of greatness, but Jesus says, well, actually, no, this is real greatness. And so you want to be great? That's good. Here's how to be great. You're going to be the servant of all. Now, this is pretty straightforward. Jesus then actually takes a child and pulls him up on his knee and, and begins to use the child as an illustration. And there was another occasion where Jesus said to the disciples at one point, you know, unless you become, unless you're converted and become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom. And when he uses a child, he's taking the child in all of its simplicity and all of the innocence and impurity and, and those things. And that's what he's saying. Now, of course, in that world and in the world today, children in and of themselves don't have any real power. Children aren't going to be able to dominate someone or rule over someone. And so Jesus takes a child and uses them as an illustration. Now, I think, and I think we should think, that this was a pretty clear communication on the part of Jesus of what greatness is really like. And, and, you know, you would think at this point that they would get it and they'd say, okay, yeah, that's right. So we don't want to have those disputes or those arguments anymore. Jesus told us how to be great. But then when we come to the next story, we find James and John sort of sneaking off from the other guys and getting Jesus alone and saying, hey, when you set up the kingdom, which he's been trying to tell them that's not going to happen the way you think it is, but hey, when you do that, we want to sit at your right hand and your left. But listen, here's the other component that Matthew tells us that Mark doesn't. They pulled their mother into it. And so it was actually, Matthew tells us that it's like they said, mom, mom, go, go talk to Jesus and you vouch for us. You tell him that, yeah, we're, we should be at his right and his left. So the, the mother of James and John is the one who actually goes and says, Jesus, I want you to do me a favor. When you get into your kingdom, I want my two sons to sit at your right hand and your left. Now, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Now, think about this. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Now, the mother of James and John 
Most people think that she was the sister of Mary, and that could be true. Doesn't say specifically that she was, but you, you could put some passages together. It seemed like she was. Whether she was Mary's sister or not, she was very close. She was part of this close band of women. She would have been with the women that were there on the day that Jesus was crucified. And when she was standing there seeing Jesus on the cross, he was there in the center. And on his right hand and on his left hand were two other people. Think of what she might have thought of then. Because Jesus said to her, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And that was a reference to the suffering that was coming. Can you drink the cup? Jesus was going to, remember, he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath. And I can only imagine that the mother of James and John, at that point, when she saw Jesus on the cross, I would imagine in her own mind, it flashed back that she asked that her sons would be on his right and his left when he entered into his glory. This is the place where Jesus is entering into his glory. You know, that in and of itself should tell us that we can be thankful that God doesn't always give us what we ask him to give us. Because we're thinking we're asking for something, but we don't know. We don't know everything. And we might be asking for something that if we knew what we were asking for, we would never be asking for it. And I'm sure if the mother of these two young men knew the cup that Jesus would drink and, and the baptism that he would be baptized with, that she wouldn't be asking. But that's what happened. So now... As we read on in the 10th chapter here, once this happens, the other 10 are really annoyed. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, they might have been trying to take the high road and said, didn't you learn the lesson that Jesus taught us when he took the child and put him on his lap? They might have been trying to take that high road, but I don't think that's really why they were mad at them. I think they were mad because James and John just beat them to the punch. It's like, oh, we wanted to do that because we're supposed to be there. Not you guys. But the thing in all of this that is so interesting to me is these are the men that Jesus is choosing and, and grooming and equipping to be his messengers, to take the gospel of the kingdom into the, into the whole world. But they're not even getting it. They're, they're not even getting it. Their, their um, behavior here is disappointing to say the least, but it is not uncommon. And in 2,000 years, nothing has really changed because we can find the same kinds of things today. We can find the same kind of ambition sometimes in church leaders. We can find people who, on the one hand, might give the best sermon you could possibly give on what it is to be a servant and turn around and behave like a dictator. That, that unfortunately, is what has happened and what does happen. So... This teaching is so important. And, and think of it. It's so 
like, like I said earlier, upside down. It's so different than the world has always thought. And Jesus makes it clear here. This is the thinking of the world. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is how greatness is determined in the world. The more people you have power over, the more people you rule over, the greater you are. That's the world's take on it. But Jesus is coming and he's bringing something completely different. Now think for a second, just let your mind just sort of scan history and think of most people that have ruled that, that we can think of. You think back to the Caesars who were ruling at the time of these things, you know, think into the future beyond that and the, the various rulers. And you could probably count on one hand those who have ruled benevolently, those who have ruled graciously, those who have ruled with their people primarily in mind. You could probably count them on one hand in all of history. Why? Because the rulers of the Gentiles, they think a power over people, that, that's what it's all about. And that's what has been the case, right? And even today, now, remember, there was a time that a politician was uh, a public servant. That was the idea. You're going to go into politics because you're going to become a public servant. You want to serve the people. You want to benefit the people. You want to help the people. Now, how many of us today, when you think of politician, how many people today even think of public servant? That's like just been removed to a large degree because most people, at least the ones that are in the the public eye, the ones that are getting most of the coverage and so forth, it doesn't seem like their agenda is for the people. It seems like they have their own personal agenda. And this is all about themselves. And that's just typical of the way the world has worked. But Jesus is coming and he's just turning everything upside down. His kingdom, many times you can kind of look at a situation and if you want to know what God thinks about it, some, in some cases you can just think the opposite and that's, that's, that's what God thinks about it. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, that which is highly esteemed among people is an abomination to God. So think of all the things that, that, as humanity, all the things that we esteem, all the things that we think are, yeah, this is the greatest, and this is the way to do this, and this is the way to be that, and all that. What does God think about that? Well, that's all an abomination to God. So it's a, it's a total upside-down situation. But like I said earlier, it's actually a right-side-up situation. So greatness is a, is a good thing, but it all depends on what we understand greatness to be and how we seek greatness. So let's talk about two things, the wrong way to greatness and the right way to greatness. So what is the wrong way to greatness? Well, the wrong way to greatness is through pride in the exertion of power. But that's, again, how most people think of greatness. Pride is what's driving you know, there are, there are people, this is, this is interesting, and this is current. You know, there are people that hate the Christian message, and one of the reasons they hate it, ironically, 
is because of the emphasis on humility. The more people move away from a biblical ethic, the more they begin to despise the biblical virtues. And so biblically, and even across culturally, for so much of history, humility has been seen by, by many as a virtue. Now, some people didn't see it that way. And, and actually, one of the reasons why the Romans despised Christianity was the emphasis on humility. That humility is weak in their mind. And of course, they were proud Romans. We are the Romans. We're the guys who conquered the world. And it was that, that pride in themselves that kept driving that empire forward. But the gospel puts the emphasis on humility. And so we cannot let the world influence us when we think of what greatness is because the ideas of the world do always creep into the church. So in the day that we're living in, you know, the church has always had a business component to it. When you get to be a certain size as a church, you, there's just naturally a business component to it. And that's okay, fine. It's, it is what it is. But then what happens is some people come along and they say, well, you know, the church, of course, yes, has this business component and the church is a corporation. And so, you know, this is how corporations function. This is how corporations operate. So let's just take what the corporations do and let's move it into the church. And this is how we'll run the church. And you know, some of that stuff is okay because it's just practical accounting and, and things like that. That's fine. But when the mentality becomes like this, okay, so uh, in the corporate world, the, the person, you know, the most important person in a corporation is the chief executive officer and the CEO. So, okay, now the church, well, okay, the church is a corporation too. So the pastor, let's not, you know, pastor is like an old-fashioned word. That, you know, it's like a shepherd you know, Bible stuff that people don't know anything about. Let's just call them the CEO. That happens. That's not, I'm not making this up. This is reality. The minute the pastor prefers to be known as the CEO rather than the shepherd, the ship is already sinking. That is a massive problem. But that's the infiltration of the world into the church. Now, Many times the pastor is the CEO. That's not the problem. The problem is when the idea of the CEO and what that means in regard to power, what it means in regard to position, what it means in regard to compensation, and all that's when it becomes the problem. So how is it that having this very clear teaching by Jesus right in front of us and and you know, many times preaching it, how is it that, that we miss this? And now let's join Pastor Brian as he shares about this month's resource from Back to Basics. Hi, Pastor Brian here. We are hearing so much in the culture today about transgender identities and so forth. And so the book that I want to recommend is going to help you 
think through that. The book is called Embodied, Transgender Identities, The Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. The author is Preston Sprinkle. Preston has a PhD in New Testament theology, but he's really made this an area of deep, deep study and expertise, does an excellent job. This is something that we need to know how to navigate. So once again, the book Embodied by Preston Sprinkle, it will help you to know what the Bible says and how to navigate around the issues of transgenderism. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church and What the Bible Has to Say by Preston Sprinkle. You can order the book Embodied by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Embodied by Preston Sprinkle to help you navigate the issues surrounding transgenderism. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.